Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast you can listen to while enjoying a problematic beer. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Dorian. Prince Charles delivered the Queen's speech in his mother's place on Tuesday. Among the government policies he announced was tough new penalties for the kind of protest tactics used by Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. The Lords stripped out similar measures in January. Can these new anti-protest laws be diluted at all? They're very keen on them. <laughs> they they sure are. I mean, they're, they're so keen on them that uh, for those of us that were very active in opposing the policing bill that went through last month and has now got royal assent, um, the government and Conservative MPs repeatedly cited Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain as the reason why that very authoritarian bill was necessary, targeting all forms of peaceful protest. And, and, and those of us that organised peaceful protest were like, but but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You've got to still allow peaceful protest to continue. Um, and now they're saying exactly the same for the public order bill. So, of course, all of that was nonsense, and we knew it was, but it was effective in getting Tory backbenchers to vote the right way. And I think it's worth remembering that, that groups like XR and Insulate Britain, they, they already don't follow rules and, and laws in, in a lot of what they do. So the idea that a new law is going to stop them is ridiculous, almost by definition. When I did, covered the Just Stop Oil protest, these aren't sort of new penalties because the stuff that they were guilty of before was more sort of vague when it comes to sort of locking on and gluing yourself onto things. But like you say... The point of civil resistance is to break the law and to be arrested. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. and you know, regardless of your politics, the right to protest is a fundamental right of any democratic society worth a name. And I think the other really important point in all of this is the police themselves, senior police have said that these sort of ambiguous and populist laws only open them up to criticism and legal challenges after the fact and we saw that around the the Sarah Everard protest so the, the police don't want it um you know those of us that that believe in uh, civil society being a, a healthy part of a healthy democracy uh, don't want it and it's all just another smokescreen for this government's true goal of closing down avenues of accountability Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog hi Ros hello Dorian uh, Charles also announced a wedge of new planning laws. Is this good news for my sworn enemies, the NIMBYs? This is just pure catnip for NIMBYs. They are going to love it. There is going to be so much to do. These new laws are pretty unclear so far. It's not really clear whether people in each street will be invited to vote on every single new conservatory or extension that somebody wants to put in, or just in principle whether new conservatories or extensions and so on ought to be allowed or not. That is not clear, but that doesn't seem to matter very much. It is not so much new laws, frankly, as as throwing out old ones, throwing out the plans that they had. And Michael Gove admitted today that there was no way that he was going to meet his housing targets. Nothing new there. Governments generally don't meet their housing targets. But to actually say, yeah, we're cool with not meeting them anymore is quite a new thing. I heard him trashing his own target on the Today programme this morning, (laughs) going, well, what's the point of houses unless they're beautiful houses? And of course, Uh I like the idea of beautiful houses as well. But it it was quite strange to hear him just going, like, yeah. like I, I was an idiot to set those targets. It was, it was odd. And the odd thing about this as well is that it purports to hand more power back to local people so that they can decide how beautiful their neighbourhood is going to be. But in fact, what it actually does is take power away from councils. It's saying to councils, you don't really have the right to decide on this anymore. Uh, we're going to hand it over to local people. And it is a recipe for ultimate conflict. I mean, you can imagine what the lobbying and the, the factional and it'll be like LTNs on on steroids. Can you imagine your neighbours <laughs> voting on your extension? Yeah, just yeah. just harrowing <laughs> scenes. Our guest this week has a big intrigue. She's the Liberal Democrat spokesperson for foreign affairs and international development and education and MP for Oxford Western Abingdon. And she's come straight from the front bench duties in the House of Commons. And she first appeared on Good Old Romaniacs back in 2017. Leila Moran, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Gosh, that was a long time ago. It's nearly five year anniversary from my life. Yeah. Oh, I look I look so much younger now, though. <laughs> <laughs> like Benjamin Button, just going backwards. <laughs> We've covered a couple of things um, in the Queen's speech. What uh, springs out for you as something to, to worry about, something to possibly oppose down the line? 
Oh my God, the whole thing. I mean, it was dire. It's 38 bills of awfulness. I mean, I think if I was going to pick one, um, I mean, the Bill of Rights, right? Like the eroding of our, our human rights. Um, I mean, this is, it, you can kind of look across all the different bills and work out, right, which one is tied to which potential leadership candidate for the Tory party, because I think that's more or less how these have got through. Um, but, you know, picking up on on what you were talking with Naomi about earlier, the fact that they're bringing back the protest or some other form bill, they're basically stoking the culture war again. Um, they're bringing a Brexit opportunities bill. Oh, my God, I'm going to have some fun with that one. Um, and basically what I can see them doing is they're floundering right we we know that um local elections were dire for them the prognosis of the economy looks dire for them and so what we're seeing here in the queen's speech is them looking back at when did we do well and trying to replay old wounds in the country in order to find surer footing for themselves i think that's what we need to understand the queen's speech to be um it is the conservative party looking ahead not just to the next year, but potentially the general election in 2024, because basically this is the last session where it's very likely these are the ones that are going to definitely get done uh, before a next election, one way or another. Um, and they're looking ahead to the next election. I think that's how we need to, to view this Queen's speech. This week on the show, Keir Starmer lays down the gauntlet as he promises to resign if he served a fixed penalty notice by Durham police over the quasi scandal that we are wearily resigned to calling Beergate. Then we'll talk about the local election results and the Lib Dem revival with Layla, plus the fate of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, as Bono and the Edge descend on Kiev, we discuss the phenomenon of celebrity cameos in international crises. But first, a word from Naomi. You've got less than a month to secure your tickets for our next seaside rendezvous at the Old Market Theatre in Hove near Brighton on Wednesday the 8th of June. And drum roll, we can now announce a special addition to our stellar cast of Dorian, Ian, Roz and Alex. The Ogwen Not London Away team are going to be joined by our past guest, Raphael Baer, Guardian columnist and leader writer, and also formerly the paper's Russia correspondent. As you all know, Raph is brilliant, funny and highly informative, so it's a mustn't miss evening for everyone in the South Coast metropolitan sprawl. Tickets are on sale now at theoldmarket.com and patrons have a special discount for all live shows. Get yours now and prepare to be bright and rocked. Well. Hove, actually. Thanks, Naomi. Uh, first this week, Keir Starmer, as I said, has announced he will resign as leader if he has issued a fixed penalty notice for a was it work or not gathering in April 2021. He says he stands for honour and integrity and we shouldn't all be dragged down by the cynical belief that all politicians are the same. Naomi, put bluntly, is this a safe bet regarding the likelihood of a fixed penalty notice or could it all go horribly wrong? It's, it's fucking high stakes is what it is. Um, and I, I, I really struggle to see how much of an upside there is if he doesn't get it. But there's obviously this enormous, enormous downside if he does. Um, some have been suggesting that the rationale to this move is because he went so hard on Partygate and Johnson fines that he'd have to resign anyway. So this is merely an underlining of the difference between the two. Um, I've heard other commentators saying that, that Starmer only has himself to blame because he hit Johnson on the party so hard and on not lying to Parliament. But I don't agree with that analysis because one is a very you know technical parliamentary legal point and the other hits right at the heart of the British sense of decency and our COVID experiences. But you're right, it could go horribly wrong. He could get a fine. Um, I think he probably should have made clear at the conference that if he does, he's confident enough to defend himself in court and appeal it as the police will probably find it hard to get a criminal conviction. And the silver lining for Labour is that if it if it does take down Starmer, it's that the Tories' true aim was to make people think all politicians are the same and everyone broke the rules. And Starmer falling on his sword would, in one move, get rid of you know a slightly uninspiring leader and underline the difference between Labour and the Conservatives. But you know, absolutely, it is not an ideal outcome for Labour at all. So, but honestly, my my anxiety levels were through the roof watching it. I just I couldn't quite understand the logic of it. But I, I think actually some of you may disagree with me on this. Well, presumably he's leaning into his, uh, you know, slightly boring reputation as, as Mr. Rules um, yeah. and going all, going all in on the integrity issue. 
Um, I suppose some people are going that going all in on integrity in British politics is uh, is a foolish move. Mm. It's yeah. risky. I mean, I, I don't think that you, the claim that he's going to somehow shame Johnson into resigning as well is, holds any water. There is no mm. reason whatsoever why Johnson would resign. We have seen that he is absolutely determined to cling to power and has no shame whatsoever. To aim to do it on those grounds is, I would, I think, be very misguided. Of course, the electorate may have different views, but in terms of actually getting a resignation, which, to be honest, is not in his interest anyway, not in Starmer's short or medium term interest to get no, rid of no. Johnson Johnson right is now. a great asset for the Labour Party. Yeah, exactly. Well, Rod Starmer called for resignations over Partygate after this incident had been reported, which was nine months ago, but not yet amplified, not yet really something that anyone was interested in. Presumably, he thought he'd done nothing wrong. Why has this become such a big problem for him? Is it possible that he's done something wrong and not realised it? Oh, and, and if so, why, why has he, if he hasn't done anything wrong, why has he been so, almost as unclear as I am asking this question, why has he been so unclear about spelling it out and going, look, this was a work thing. Here's the evidence, bish bosh. Well, I think it's partly because he's a lawyer. And so he understands the full complexity and contradictory nature of many of the COVID laws. And quite frankly, the fact that we don't know whether it was acceptable, or some of us don't know whether it was acceptable, for a party leader to a few days before the elections to be visiting a constituency and to feed his staff on site is an indictment of the laws that were passed and their clarity. But that aside, he has fallen victim to some massive trolling i mean it is it has been it has been days and days and days that the daily mail and the sun and various other commentators have just banged on and on about this in the most extreme form of whataboutery possible i mean this the, these these tactics are drawn directly from social media it's like keep on keep at it say they're all the same say what about this what about that and the only thing you can do eventually when people just carry on banging on is say well what can i do i'm just going to hang it hand it this over to the ultimate arbiter and in this, in this instance, the ultimate arbiter is, of course, the Durham police. So we have the crazy, worrying, frankly, situation where the Durham yep. police get yep. to decide whether the leader of the Labour Party and the deputy leader stay in power, which is extremely undesirable. Um, well, as well as the Conservative press hammering the story, it turns out that the uh, concerned citizen who took the shots of Starmer through the window is the student son of right-wing lunatic James oh Dellingpole. Oh, my God! <laughs> So is yeah. this just a spooky coincidence or is this a hit job of the kind beloved by uh, uh, Dellingpole Senior's employers? Oh, yeah. Of course it's a hit job. Of course it is. I mean, uh, and it is, uh, you should point out as well, I think, that the person who's probably been pushing this hardest outside the mail is Alex Wickham, who is a who is the author of an email called uh, Politico, Politico's Daily Briefing. Basically, everyone in Westminster reads that daily briefing. Alex Wickham is formerly, he worked for Guido Fawkes, but, you know, OK, we all make mistakes. But he then became godfather to Boris Johnson's son, Wilfred. He is intimately connected to the Johnson government, therefore. And he has been hammering away in this daily email that is so widely read saying, oh, but, you know, people are starting to ask questions, carrying on, carrying on, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. There is no doubt that this is a sustained campaign. Because there was something the other day about this uh, Labour were planning a Christmas party in 2020 and then it was cancelled. But I was also... I mean, obviously, nobody really cares what I'm doing. But I remember also planning a Christmas party because we were told very strongly by Boris yep. Johnson that we would all be able to have Christmas parties. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when it but, you know, at the time that I planned it, it wasn't allowed. And by the time it would have happened, it wasn't allowed. Therefore, it didn't happen. But we were told that it would be allowed. And I just thought, hang on, this is a non you're trying to just kind of ladle a complete non-story. Yeah, it's complete water battery. Complete water battery. Yeah. There was a really um, cute bit of polling I saw today as well, because I think the effect of it is that it's a, you know, mud on all of you, you're all the same, all the rest of it. And just to sort of prove that point, I think, I can't remember which polling company, so I'm not going to spread falsehoods, um, but uh, their question kind of did. Um, because they asked a question whereby they said, had you heard of Beergate? Uh, had you heard of Partygate? And had you heard, and I think they called it Hypegate. <laughs> yes. A fictitious 
there is no there is no hike gate. Ed Davy is not involved in any of this. Um, but they completely made another uh, thing up, suggesting that also uh, Ed Davy was involved. And twenty percent of people responded that they had heard of this completely fictitious hike yeah. gate. And yeah. at, what I think that tells us at the time, I thought, oh God, that's quite amusing. And some people will remember from the 2019 general election, Joe Swinson had a false story about her killing squirrels, um, which caused actually some problems because some people ended up really believing it and it started coming up on doors. So I first thought initially, oh my God, it's another one of those. But actually on reflection over a few hours, I realized that is probably the measure of how much this mudslinging between the Tories and Labour is now affecting all politicians, regardless of if they broke rules or not. And that is, in effect, what the right-wing media and the Conservative Party want. They want all people to think all politicians are the same. And that is why they are pushing the Beer Gate story so hard, because it basically shields Boris Johnson from his wrongdoing. I mean, forget the fact that he was the one who ultimately made the rules. I mean, for Mm. me, that's the bit that is just the most important bit. No matter who else may have broken them, he was ultimately the one who signed them off. That surely gives him even more accountability than anyone else that might have broken them. But um, uh, I don't think that's the effect that it has uh, at the moment. Was Ed Davey disappointed that his fake scandal was so boring and just involved him travelling too far away for a walk? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I've spoken to Ed about it. We had much merriment in our MPs WhatsApp group this morning, though. When it, was- it, it, it was the rant of comrades that, that oh, did yeah, the polling. Yeah. And I, 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 I think in the public slight defence, if I may, it, it probably sounds quite like... Um, the, the Dominic Cummings trip oh, yeah. to Barnard Castle and we went for a walk. And it may have been just a, yeah. a straight up confusion with that and them not maybe, really maybe. knowing. Yeah. Fair enough, Fair enough. I, n- I never defend the British public, Naomi. <laughs> um, Leila, is taking the moral high ground, I mean, it's obviously important to Keir Starmer, but is it important in modern British politics or is success, you know, really about fronting it out and getting away with it? And in fact, mm. if you kind of major in uh, integrity then people will, will will just be waiting for a chance to call you a hypocrite. Do you know what? This whole thing has made me actually quite reflective and a bit sad about the state of politics in our country right now. Because what Keir Starmer is in effect doing is what I think most people would hope most politicians would do in this situation. And people hark back to days when you know ministers would stand up at the dispatch box say something wrong and then resign off the back of it um, if they got something wrong and they admitted it. And, you know, the old fashioned notion of a proper apology with consequences. And I really, really want to believe that this gamble is going to pay off, that actually that deep sense in the British public of decency and honesty. I mean, I think it's true to say that that all exists. We know it exists because, frankly, Um, that is one of the major reasons why people are moving away from the Conservatives in elections right now. You know, did a lot of door knocking in the locals. It was there in the background as their reason for moving away. They want politicians to be decent and honest and have integrity. And so Keir Starmer is playing into that and he can see that that's helpful to him. However, we have now had half a decade at least of people fronting it out, getting away with it, lie upon lie. There are two ways of doing politics in this country. There's the way that I like to hope I do it, that other people I know like to do it. And Keir Starmer's saying, I'm that type of politician, a bit more old-fashioned. We tell the truth. We try our best. If we make a mistake, we say sorry. And then there's another type of politician that basically gets away with lying. They say things that are not just, you know, bending the truth, maybe polishing one statistic here and omitting another, actually just brazenly lying and doing it over and over and over again in the way that we've seen in America for much, much longer than the last half decade that it's really, really taken off here. And um, they're getting away with it. And I really, really want this to pay Mm. off because I like to think that Britain is better than that. Um, Roz, let's, I don't want to speculate too much about what happens if it doesn't pay off, but I did notice that the bookie's favourite uh, for the next Labour leader at some point is Andy Burnham, who isn't even eligible because uh, he's the mayor of Greater Manchester and not an MP. Distantly followed by West Street and Rachel Reeves, Lisa Nandy and Angela Rayner and nobody that Starmer's foes on the left would welcome, which makes you wonder why they are quite keen for him to go. Um, do you sense any appetite in Labour for a leadership contest? Naomi said, oh, well, you know, Starmer's uninspiring and, and so therefore it might not be so bad. 
um, to lose him. But do you feel that there's any kind of like rumblings on the back benches or that, you know, West Streeting is is lunging for the crown? No, I think I mean I I think um, Streeting in particular is being very loyal, and there are there's there's no I don't think anyone's yet getting off the ground. Certainly not to the extent that Johnson's rivals in the Conservative Party have. That said, there is that feeling, and we saw it in the after the local elections that Labour is doing okay. Certainly doing an awful lot better than it was, but it could be doing even better with a charismatic leader who connected with people in a way that Keir Starmer, for all his many virtues, unfortunately has not yet managed to do. And so that will be ticking away in the minds of Labour MPs. I don't think it's very important that uh, for the far left that so far they don't appear to have a candidate. Let's face it, when Corbyn... uh, was nominated, nobody thought he had a chance either. The rules are now a bit different and it is more difficult for someone uh, to come from the far left. And uh, but, but of course, ultimately, the party members do have a, a big say. So I wouldn't underestimate the ability of the, the, the hope that the far left will have that they could get a candidate at least onto the uh, onto the roster. Should I promise to resign from this podcast if there is a, a far left MP nominated? <laughs> because I I am very sure that that will not happen. Um, but then promising to resign can backfire. So <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't do that because you know similarly there's the same thing with Starmer. I would I would hate to see um, a uh, person who is good at their job being removed uh, purely through you know their own their own sense of um, their fair own, play and integrity. Their own sense of fair play and integrity. <laughs> that would be I fear a mistake. And okay. I think as I say I think there will be one pretty pretty far left candidate on the just as their as their uh, always has been. Whether they will make any progress is another question. Hergen revival. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for a question from the listeners in But Your Emails. And in an exciting break from tradition, this week's questioner is last week's guest, none other than Neil Kinnock, uh, who writes... Uh, no pressure for next week, Layla. You don't have to send in a question. Um, uh, Neil writes, A granddaughter had a few dollars left over from her dad's recent work trip and asked me on Friday how much they were worth in pounds. I gave her a figure and then checked and discovered I was about 12p out. I was astonished to find that just this year the pound has devalued 10% against the dollar. As an ancient anorak, that led me to check the pound against the euro. The pound is just 3% down since March, but 12.7% down since the referendum. I guess the 12% higher import prices, including food since June 2016, are all part of the wonder of taking back control. Is this another media-neglected bill for Brexit? And if so, why? Uh, we checked the latest numbers. The pound is down 2.5% against the euro for March and 106 since June 23rd, 2016. That magical day. Um, Naomi, so can we, first off, can we partly blame inflation on uh, Brexit's damage to the pound? Because that's not one of the top line. Can uh, I just say I'm getting massive like PTSD here. I feel like I'm doing a GCSE maths exam question. It's like, Neil, right, okay, so hold on. I've got 12.7% and 3% and 12% The, the question is, uh, the former Labour leader's granddaughter <laughs> goes to change some money. <laughs> um, have we got to show my workings? Do I get you don't have to do, You don't have to do the maths, but um, the politics of it. Yeah. I mean, look, for sure, we know one thing is absolutely certain, and that, that is Brexit has had an enormously detrimental impact on our economy not least because of the impact on the currency, but largely because of the lack of trade intensity we now have as a proportion of GDP compared to other G7 countries. We are becoming a much less trade-intensive country. 
And the, the issue about sterling and the impact on that is directly feeding into the cost of living crisis, which, as we know, is, is the number one issue for voters across the country at the moment and is not going away and is going to be their number one issue as we head into the next general election, whether that's in six months or two years. Um, and for those that go on holiday and travel and have, you know, parents that can afford to take them away, like um, Neil Kinnock's granddaughter, uh, they will notice, therefore, that their pound doesn't get them as many euros and they can't buy as much stuff when they're away and it's more expensive to drink your sangria and shop in the market or whatever it is that you're doing. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a huge impact at home because the the less our currency is worth, the more expensive it is for us to buy all of the stuff that we have to import into this country. And that means that prices of goods on shelves goes up and everybody suffers. So yeah, look, every e- even the Brexiters are now not saying that, that they thought Brexit would be good for the economy. They, but are they, voters blaming the cost of living crisis? to some extent on Brexit. 100%. They are blaming it. I don't think that's wholly... They are blaming it on Ukraine, but they're they're blaming it a lot on COVID and and global supply restrictions as well. And and the the issue about microchips in China has cut through quite quite well as well. They they, they kind of see it as uh, the whole world is suffering. And what our job is to do is to say that we are suffering more than other countries because we are dealing with all of the issues facing them, global supply chain issues, pandemic impact, war in Ukraine. But on top of that, we're the only country in the world that's also suffering that extra burden of Brexit. There you go. Neil Kinnock tricked us into being mean about Brexit. Next up, we're a week out from the local elections. Despite the initial spin, it was a disaster for the Tories, who lost 485 council seats and 12 councils across the UK. Uh, Lib De- Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Labour, Labour did well, uh, Greens and Lib Dems even better. Um, Ros, early reports in the media, not just from the Tories, framed this as a, as a very mixed picture, picture. It was quite interesting seeing the stuff that was coming out the next morning um, from the BBC, God bless them as well, you know, saying it's not that bad for the government, not that good for Labour. Um, at that point, of course, we didn't know that the Tories were going to have lost almost 500 seats. Uh, I think the Daily Mail set the benchmark for disaster at 350. Um, how does that framing hold up? Well, not very well at all. I mean, it was some uh, very clever spin on the part of the Conservatives in particular, who first of all downplayed their chances, and rightly so, as it turned out, in the elections, and then assured us that they weren't as bad uh, as they could have been before we knew all the results. I mean, it was very, very disingenuous, and I was kind of disappointed to see some of the journalists who were swallowing that line, quite frankly, on the Friday morning. Um, and of course, then beer gate came along. Not that I like to call it beer gate because I don't think it's worthy of the word gate. But um, then everybody was swept along by that, and it it all moved on. But ultimately, this was a yeah extremely bad set of results for the Tories. And I mean, even in even on Friday morning, we knew, for example, that the Tories had lost not just Barnet, not just Wandsworth, but even Westminster. <laughs> which means that Downing Street is now in a Labour-held council. Yeah, which is... exactly. I mean, basically, the Tories hardly hold any um, councils in, in London now, just a, a very few on the fringes. So it is extraordinary how this narrative was able to take hold so quickly. Um, obviously, all politics of political commentary is obsessed with the uh, red wall. Now, this is an odd one because these seats were last contested in 2018 before the sort of great Labour collapse there. So it's sort of, it's not comparing it to what happened in 2019. It's comparing it to the point where that, that, those sort of areas were still holding. Given that, does Labour seem to be clawing back any lost ground there? And they, they, they sort of did quite well in a new council, Cumberland? Yes, they did. I mean, it was a mixed picture. There were some places where they didn't do so well at all, like Nuneaton, for example, and uh, Amber Valley in Derbyshire. But there was some interesting analysis by an academic called Stephen Fisher, and he looked at uh, English wards outside London that held elections um, last year and this year, and he compared the Labour share of the vote in wards that voted for Brexit and wards that voted for Remain. And what was interesting there was that the Labour increase in the vote went up more in Brexit wards, which really suggests that that issue 
has lost its grip mm -hmm. and lost its ability to damage labour, which is obviously very good news. And again, you know, this is something that has been overlooked, ignored. Mm. Uh, Naomi Johnson is not going, as we discussed. Um, a lot of ex-councillors are furious with him and obviously blaming him and Partygate uh, and cost of living and other things. Mm. Where's all this discontent going now that there doesn't seem like it's going to be a leadership challenge, but nobody seems to be very happy with him apart from Nadine Doris. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, he's in trouble. Um, when I was still a Liberal Democrat who was very concerned about the direction of travel under Nick Clegg and coalition, one of the warning signs was that the Lib Dems were losing councillors every year uh, between 2010 and 2015. Um, year on year, losing, losing, losing more and more and more councillors. And in swathes of the country, the councillors were your local activists. There, there, there weren't hordes of other leaflet deliverers. And then, of course, it gets the Euro elections and, and near wipeout. Um, so he needs to be concerned about this. This is, uh, you know, a bellwether. Um, this is a warning signal that, that voters are not happy. Um, those ex-councillors are waiting for the stalking horse to finally put their head over the parapet and, and go for it. Um, but at the moment, of course, there isn't uh, an obvious heir apparent now that Sunak is, is so disgraced. Lots and lots of talk over the last week in the rumour mills about Penny Mordaunt, which I know I've mentioned many times on this show as, as somebody to watch. Um, and I think the militarists of Elwood and Tugendhat and even Ben Wallace are, are really hoping that she will run. But whether they wait for a Jeremy Hunt figure or, or somebody else to go over the top first before firing that pistol, I don't know. Um, I, I also think that it's, it's, it's fascinating that um, the Greens have done well and not really been talked about much. Um, I'm sure we can talk about that a bit later because of the, of the impact that that will have on Lib Dems and places like Cheltenham. But also worth mentioning that Labour did lose control of Hull that is now Lib Dem controlled again after quite a long time of not being. Um, so you have got this quite mixed picture across the country where you would expect it was only the Lib Dems doing well in uh, blue wall seats and Labour doing very well in red wall seats. And actually that doesn't seem to be playing out exactly uh, as you'd expect. But then again, people vote differently in local elections than they do at the general election. I think it's also worth remembering that um, Liberal Democrats tend to do well in, in smaller wards um, so although their success is great in terms of the number of councillors, in terms of actual numbers of votes, um, that doesn't always necessarily transfer uh, if, if you're looking at a, a, a larger area. Leila, over to you. You're the expert. Well, no, I, that's a really interesting fact, Naomi. I <laughs> totally appreciate that. I mean, we've got a, a and sort of hot off the press from uh, this afternoon is um, I'm really proud to say that West Oxfordshire District Council is now officially led by a Liberal Democrat for the first time in just over two decades. Um, and in terms of direction of travel, I think there is a broader picture for the Liberal Democrats who did really well. It was a really good night, not just for us in England. In England, it was really good. And, you know, taking Hull off Labour was actually on the cards. That team had been working for a very long time and it didn't take much to toss it, push it over the edge. Um, Somerset was amazing. I don't think any of us were quite expecting that. Um, and, and we've probably got a, a by-election soon in Somerset where you'll be the front do. runner. Or is it is it Devon? I can't remember which. I uh, I think it's Devon. It's right. mid Devon, okay. the Tiverton mm -hmm. one. But also mm -hmm. Somerset and Frome is possibly in possibly, the fray. Yeah. And we'll also be gunning for those um, quite strongly. But yeah, so in, in Oxfordshire, we went in 2019 leading zero of this. There are six councils, five districts and one county. Uh, as of today, we now run four uh, of those six, which is an extraordinary change of fortunes. And I think you shouldn't just look at this year. I think it has been a slow grow back from albeit a low base over the last few years. I would agree um, with the characterization that Brexit is, as far as the voters are concerned, done. And I think we're benefiting from that. I think that is one mm. of the dynamics that has played well for us in this last election. Um, and uh, I think you can look at sort of rural areas, urban areas. Also in Wales and Scotland, we made progress. And very hearteningly, our sister party in Northern Ireland, Alliance, also did really, really well. I, I am hoping very much, and, you know, we've been looking for the sort of green shoots of Lib Dem proper recovery for some time. But it's true to say, you know, we went from the coalition years straight into Brexit, you know, both very divisive, very difficult for the party, 
both are now waning to an extent. I think there is a real hope uh, that for the party, we are going to put down some green shoots, but also grow some strong roots, uh, which is the important thing that we now need to do to be resilient for the future. Well, um, Lib Dems um, done very well here. I think more than double Labour's total gains in terms of seats. Um, local elections don't always translate into general right. elections. And what you've seen is gains in bluish areas, Surrey, Oxfordshire and South Cambridgeshire. But the Greens won some seats from the Lib Dems um, in, in sort of target seats like Cheltenham and, and Winchester. Now, does this mean that wooing disillusioned Tories means that you lose ground to the Greens on, on sort of the other direction? Or are there sort of local factors that make this so complicated that I'm missing? I think it's really hard. You really on, on the relationship with the Greens, and I'll give you a good example. Actually, we worked in Oxford with the Greens to oust a Labour councillor. Um, because um, so this is in my patch in Osney and I endorsed the local green candidate we chose not to stand one and Mm. um, because there are no Tories on Oxford City Council so actually uh, it's in our interest to have a beefed up opposition and in this case it worked Um, elsewhere in Kidlington just up the road slightly more Brexity area um, and was not so good for us certainly in uh, 2015 and 17 much better for us now uh, in Kidlington East, we work with the Greens uh, to oust a Tory. Um, and so I think it, even in my own area, you had two very different stories about our relationship with the Greens. And I would strongly suggest we don't sort of generalise what's happening there. I think there's going to be very, very different pictures across different parts of the country as to the relationship with the Greens. What I do know is that uh, they tend to find taking votes off Labour easier than we do. Uh, it was certainly harder and, you know, door knocking in, in my area, I was fighting both Labour's and Labour and Tories uh, in this election, much, much harder against Labour than it was for us against the Tories, hands down. Um, and uh, the Greens tend to be better at taking it off the Tories. I would urge people to look carefully at where they did manage to take seats off uh, the Tories. Was it with the help of the Lib Dems or not? Because that's the artificial sort of inflation bit. Were deals done? in different parts of the country that benefited both parties. Uh, So how do you turn local election gains into um, more seats in Westminster? Like, where are you looking? Well, this is the thesis question of uh, Oxfordshire at the moment. So we, in boundary changes, go from six seats to seven. And that's exactly what we are now focused on. And the answer, um, Dorian, is infrastructure. Um, We win seats by delivering more leaflets, by talking to more people. And the thing about local elections that's better for us is that there isn't a sort of cacophony in the media of people saying that this is a fight against, you know, this is Labour versus Tory. This is about who's going to be the next prime minister. It's not the same. You have a little bit of it, but not anywhere near as much as you do in a general. Um, In order to overcome that, it is literally about how much you can spread your message versus what people are hearing in their regular newspapers and on the BBC and everything else. And you can't do that without people knocking on doors and delivering the leaflets and raising the money in order to print the leaflets in the first place. So that is how you do it. Um, And it's as simple as that. And it sounds simple, but actually it's quite difficult to do. (laughs) And your party's real uh, nemesis is the 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 first-past-the-post system. Mm -hmm. Now, say things go well... uh, go in the direction that they're going for Labour, which would mean that they sort of narrowly win the next election but wouldn't have a majority, would mean calling on the Lib Dems in some capacity. Do you think that that would mean, on your your part, demanding that, that, that PR for the Commons was on the table, that that would be sort of the, the, the price of admission? Um, I don't want, you know, the, the, I can't possibly answer a hypothetical question, but I genuinely <laughs> want to say... But you know, the makeup of what that looks like is going to be really important because I don't think that's going to be the only consideration. I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, the SNP may be involved. You know, we are unionists. I think, you know, doing anything that in any way then jeopardizes the integrity of the union will also come into play. So I think we've just got to be, you know, this far out. What I will say is I genuinely think PR needs to be the top priority. Um, we know and we've learned to our peril. Um, and much as there were, you know, Definitely, and no, I mean, I've spoken about this at length, you know, lots in coalition that there was to disagree with and policy decisions that were taken badly. Actually, the general uh, point for smaller parties who go into any kind of either coalition confidence or supply or whatever is that they tend to get burned at the next election. That's not just in this country, that's in other countries too. 
the only prize that would mitigate that, in my view, would be PR, um, because that would then be the way that you would be able to claw back some of the seats that you will inevitably lose. Um, but I honestly don't know what appetite there is going to be for any of that, given our experience, the very burning experience of coalition that we had when we were in one. And I, I'm not convinced at this stage, uh, genuinely, that we would go there. Is your sense, way we've been talking to Labour MPs, that there is more appetite now for thinking about PR, for thinking about, um, I mean, Naomi's, uh, I banned Naomi from mentioning the Progressive Alliance, but I'm going to mention one now. You know, these tactical arrangements like the one you were talking about with the Greens in that particular area, Labour's always been very resistant to that. Do you get the feeling that that's changing given the electoral map? No, because I think actually, I think the Lib Dems are very resistant to that too, still. Um, And I think the way that we are going to do this is actually more grassroots up. I think it's going to be, and I I think back to my election uh, in 2017, it was very much a surprise. Um, And the way we negotiated it was the Greens stood down, Labour stood, um, much to our annoyance at the time. Um, But actually the thing that, I think was the biggest thing that happened, even though it was less of a headline, was that the Greens actually came out and campaigned for us. We had Labour voters and Labour members campaigning for us in that election. So whilst there was the Labour candidate running around saying, you know, Lib Dems are awful, don't vote for them, they're just Tories. Actually, the number of activists that came out and helped Mm. to deliver those leaflets and helped us in the campaign was enormous. And that's what turned the seat. So I think people are obsessed with the wrong thing, personally. It's not necessarily about who stands on who doesn't. And I think it really needs to be seat by seat as to what the best thing to do is. Because as we know, in Labour-facing seats, actually, and Stroud's a really good example, standing down the Lib Dem actually tends to have the opposite effect of what you like. Because the Tory voters who might have voted for Lib Dems don't go the other way. They might go, mm, I think, mm. back okay, to... I won't, I won't challenge that with, with, with facts, but I could. But to reinforce your point about grassroots up, Leila, this week there are two uh, by-elections happening at a council level. One in Waverley Borough Council, where the Lib Dems and Labour have stood aside for the Greens as part of a, a Rainbow Alliance Administration Cooperation Agreement there. And uh, then on the 25th of May, um, in Spell, Spellthorn Borough, um, uh, there is, oh, sorry, I think it's Spellthorn Borough and it's Spellthorn constituency, uh, Surrey, Surrey, where both Labour and the Lib Dems, again, have stood aside for the Greens who, who run the council. And this is, you know, they're very dependent on this. So you're totally right. It will absolutely have to be at that grassroots level, not least because the opposition parties are much more devolved in their decision making about whether or not candidates get run. So it really has to come from, from the bottom up. But a great signal from the top doesn't hurt. No, well, yeah, yeah. I think definitely when you have, and we remember back in 97, Mandelson suggesting that if people wanted to get the Tories out, they should vote for the Lib Dems in these seats. I mean, I think those kinds of interventions, you know, in the papers that those voters will read, I think would be really welcome. Um, But the Tories are now, you know, trying to play off the idea of sort of dirty deals. We've just got to not fall into those traps. If we're going to do this, it needs to be sophisticated and it needs to be voter led. No one no one owns these voters. We need to treat them as adults. And actually, given all the information, I tend to find they do the right thing, but they need that information early enough. Um, The mistake we've made in previous elections, in my view, is that they get the information in a very haphazard way. There's different tactical voting websites telling them to do different things. And ultimately, everyone gets focused on who's standing where and for who. And actually, the real thing that matters is boots on the ground. Uh, Naomi, it's like your birthday uh, today, because we're going from um, tactical voting and progressive alliance to Northern Ireland. Uh, as Ian predicted last week, there's been a bit of an earthquake in your old manor. Yeah. Um, What's happened briefly and what are the political implications? Okay, so seismic result causing very little change. So they've they've switched places 
But DUP and Sinn Féin are still the two biggest parties, and they do both still need to work together to restore power sharing. Uh, the only difference is that the DUP are now, of course, much less inclined to go back into government as junior partners. So we can expect another very lengthy stormant delay, meaning no action on the stuff that actually matters to the people in Northern Ireland, like hospital waiting lists or cost of living crisis stuff. A lot of talk around whether or not this means a border poll is more likely. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, that means a, a, a referendum on whether um, there should be a united Ireland or not. And obviously Sinn Féin's position as the largest party is incredibly symbolic, but it is worth remembering that the vote share for the parties who campaign for a united Ireland has hovered at around 40% for over a decade now. And this election was no different uh, meaning that even if he was an honest broker, Brandon Lewis would probably decline any such request under the Good Friday Agreement uh, of, of holding a vote on a United Ireland. And remember, it is entirely his call. What is it? Absolutely no doubt is that the parties who campaigned on protecting the Northern Ireland Protocol saw their vote share and seat count increase because mm. combined they got almost 60% of the first preference votes and 53 seats out of 90. Um, if you include the UUP who oppose the protocol in its current incarnation but have called for reform rather than removal like the DUP, that jumps up to nearly 70% of the vote. The chatter, of course, this week is all around whether Liz Truss is going to scrap uh, the, pro uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol or scrap certain parts of it and, you know, whether or not that, that's likely to happen. Uh, I think you, you you don't scrap parts of it. It's, it's a pretty all or nothing kind of thing. And the EU have said any unilateral move from the UK is going to signal the collapse of the Brexit deal. And that is not just very bad for Northern Ireland, but for the whole of the UK, uh, and not least because of the signal it sends to other countries that we need to do trade deals with that we cannot be trusted. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this, this is, this is a, a massive result in Northern Ireland that hasn't changed very much, but could have a very hideous knock-on effect for the whole of the UK. Before we go, uh, let's take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Um, Roz, what have you detected? on the screen. Well, of course, Leila did mention this earlier, but the Queen's speech did include stuff about a Bill of Rights. And this I just mentioned this because it is it is pitiful, quite frankly. It is a pitiful proposal that was put forward. The Tories have been going on about a Bill of Rights for over a decade. They've had long, long time to think about how, if they want to have a new Bill of Rights, how it would be different from the Human <coughs> Rights Act. And they haven't really done it. What they've just done is come up with some absolute dross. I mean, the, the description of what they intend to do says that they are going to restore some common sense to our justice system. If you were going to restore common sense to our justice system, then you might actually fund it properly so that people aren't waiting years for trials and Barristers, criminal barristers, aren't on strike because they're paid so little. That's not actually in, like, in the Bill of Rights as they imagine it being printed. You couldn't just go restore some common sense, can no, you? No, no. But they've nonetheless That's... put that in the description. I mean, that is just, just, it isn't even rhetoric. It doesn't even deserve the word rhetoric. And the other thing about it as well is that it kind of purports to, it wants to move away from Strasbourg, wants to move away from the European Court of Human Rights, but it doesn't even succeed or, or say how it's going to do that or promise to do that in any concrete way. I mean, David Allen Green has been all over it in the last 24 hours, as you might expect, and he describes it as mere vanity legislation. But it, it's even worse than that. There's something so utterly pathetic about it that I, I, I was, yeah, I was quite blown away by just how low this government could go. Um, <laughs> Leila, <laughs> uh, what, what news would you like to share with us? Uh, so it's the um, killing of the Al Jazeera journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akleh. Uh, in Janine today in Palestine. And mm. I actually think that, you know, if we didn't have Ukraine, if we didn't have all the other things that were going on, there is another flashpoint, I think, brewing uh, in Palestine at the moment. There are big evictions um, that, you know, have been put off for decades that now seem to be happening again. I'm deeply, deeply concerned. Um, and I've, we've been waiting all day for Liz Truss to roundly condemn. And the US and the uh, EU have both condemned it and called for an international uh, 
investigation that is truly independent um, to get to the bottom of it. We've yet to hear everything from the UK. I think what it speaks to is a distancing of the UK from its other allies. The fact that it's been so slow, I think, says a lot. Um, and I really hope that we can, you know, give Palestine uh, and that conflict a little bit of uh, attention over the next few weeks. Because the thing is, under the Balfour Declaration, the UK has a specific, I think, duty to the people uh, in Palestine to uphold their rights in the way that they were promised all those many, many decades ago. Um, and they've done nothing so far. And it's really quite depressing. Thanks, Layla. Naomi? Well, actually, this is one um, related to Layla. Um, because she chairs the all-party group on coronavirus, uh, who've done a lot of work on long COVID. And it was um, a tweet that was put out this week and then corrected by the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, EHRC, who originally tweeted at the start of the week that they did not recommend that long COVID be treated as a disability. And then quickly corrected themselves um, to to say that actually long COVID might amount to a disability for particular individuals. And this is so important because of the now millions of people globally and and well over um, one and a half million people in the UK that are suffering with long COVID um, who have lost their jobs or are unable to work at the the rate that they were used to, etc. And so I think it's really interesting that actually public discourse is having to move towards some acceptance that this is an incredibly serious post-pandemic crisis for us financially, because these are people that are in the prime of their working lives that are now unable to work and pay taxes. Um, And of course, the the commensurate um, impact that that might have on the health service, on benefit system, etc. So I was sort of pleased to see that they corrected it. And I think it's an interesting space to watch. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Naomi. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Roz. Thank you. Naomi. Thank you. And our guest, Leila Moran. Thank you all. Lovely to be with you. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Cornershop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Many thanks from me to Melanie Nichols, Selena Holiday, Samuel Seidenblath, Tom Mandel, Tessa O'Neill, Bernie Campbell, Rachelle Cousinot, Andrew Terry, George Christian and Maureen Bowles. Hello from me and best wishes to Helen Yem, Simon Hughes, Joe Lancaster... Bagam Samru, James Armit, Richard McMenamin, Tommy Hawthorne, James Grice, Trick and Meg Marshall. And thanks to me to Stuart Hamlin, Alastair Duguid, Richard A. McKinnon, Harriet Arthur, Dr. Stephen Gregson, Rick Bean, William Alice, Kaz Twidle, Heather and Rowena Lewis. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Minsky with Naomi Smith and Rose Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sopranovich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Bono and the Edge performed a surprise 40-minute acoustic gig in a Kiev subway station where Ukrainians have been sheltering from Russian bombs in recent months. They were personally invited to Ukraine by Vladimir Zelensky. Roz, my U2 fan cards are, are already on the table. Uh, what did you make of this uh, this surprise appearance? Well, I, I think it's uh, great that U2 want to go to Kiev. That's that's brilliant. I, I did take exception to the poem that they wrote for the occasion and which they made Nancy <laughs> Pelosi read, which I don't know if you heard about. I didn't. As somebody who likes Bono, I realised that the cognitive dissonance that would amount from actually reading the poem would be too much, so I just pretended that it didn't exist. Oh, that's a shame. I was going to read a bit for Can I just read the yes, last four please. lines? Yeah, okay. And, and that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.